Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. The academies of science in the different countries around the world um, you know, provide guidance for educational institutions and, um, of course, uh, places for science policy, particularly related to uh, education. And it was interesting that a number of years ago now, back in June 2006, the, um, inter- uh, an international body of uh, academies of sciences um, released a statement on the teaching of evolution. Now, this statement was uh, signed by over 65 uh, member academies of, of science um, around the world. And so, for example, um, the Australian Academy of Sciences, the Austrian Academy of Sciences, um, the Royal Academies for Science and the Arts of Belgium, the Brazilian Academy of Sciences, and so forth, the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And so there's a list there, the Union of German Academies of Sciences and Humanities, and so forth. And uh, so these academies of uh, sciences around the world signed this uh, uh, statement that they've learned that in various parts of the world within science courses taught at certain public systems of education, scientific evidence, data and testimonial theories about the origins and evolution of life on Earth are being concealed, denied or confused with theories not testable by science. Now, they don't spell those out, but I, uh, my intuition is that they're referring to the biblical creation position, at least, uh, would be one of those things. And what they are saying is that we urge decision makers, teachers and parents to educate all children about methods and discoveries of science and to foster an understanding of science of nature. Well, I mean, that's we, we would agree with that latter, latter part, of course, I would anyway. But then they go on and they say, we agree that the following evidence-based facts about the origin and evolution of the earth and of life on this planet have been established by numerous observations and independently derived experimental results from a multitude of scientific disciplines. Even if there are still many open questions about the precise details of evolutionary change, scientific evidence has never contradicted these results. So that's a very interesting statement that they've made there. And I'll just say it again, that what they're saying is, and this is what they've written, that we agree that the following evidence-based facts about the origins and evolution of the Earth and of life on this planet have been established by numerous observations and independently derived experimental uh, results from a multitude of scientific ex- uh, disciplines. So here we are essentially saying that you know evolution has been established. And the four points that they uh, make is that the first point is that in a universe that has evolved towards its present configuration for some 11 to 15 billion years, our Earth formed approximately 4.5 billion years ago. Well, I would I would contest that that the measurements that are, are made there, uh, for example, um, 
you know, on the age of the Earth based on a lot of radiometric dating methods and dating of meteorites and that. And, of course, these methods really haven't been proved. They're actually based on a number of unproven assumptions. And uh, also the, the age of the Earth calculations are largely based on the Big Bang Theory, again, which is unproven. It's based on a whole lot of hypothetical um, assumptions and um, there's a large body of scientists that um, uh, object to the uh, Big Bang Theory being uh, taught as a, as a scientific fact because of the overwhelming evidence that doesn't fit it. So it's very interesting that they've signed this statement. So statement number two is, since its formation, the Earth, its geology and its environments has changed under the effect of numerous physical and chemical forces and continues to do so. Well, I think I'm happy with that. But point number three, this is an interesting one. Life appeared on Earth at least two and a half billion years ago. The evolution soon after of photosynthetic organisms enabled from at least two billion years ago the slow transformation of the atmosphere to one containing substantial quantities of oxygen. In addition to the release of the oxygen that we breathe, the process of photosynthesis is the ultimate source of fixed energy and food upon which human life on the planet depends. Now that's very interesting. That's again an assertion about an age and those ages again are based on largely on radiometric dating, which again, as I said, is not proven, has never been validated for prehistorical dates. But it's very interesting. It says that evolution, so some a life form, they don't say which started, but that's the general picture that some little, you know, simple-celled organism uh, did form by itself. And then the photosynthetic organisms uh, began to produce oxygen. Now, we know from what we observe today in plants that the system to produce oxygen is photosystem, called photosystem 2. It's a highly complex molecular machine um, involving you know, quite complex structures and what uh, we have no mechanism to date as to how such a complex structure could actually form so early on, let alone the first cell as I'll talk about in a little bit. So it's interesting here, what they're saying is that we've got numerous observations, independently derived experimental results from multitude of disciplines that establish that you know, life formed at that particular time and, um, and that soon after this mechanism of photosynthesis took after. And then it says, uh, point four is, since its first appearance on Earth, life has taken many forms, all of which continue to evolve in uh, different ways. It's quite interesting that this... Um, this is a statement that is assigned by you know so many academies, uh, the Royal Society, the, U the United Kingdom Royal Society, United States National Academy of Sciences, uh, the African Academy of Sciences, um, and so forth, have um, uh, all signed this particular statement. But I, I want to sort of look at this statement a little bit uh, further. Um, because this is governing education and these scientists have signed, but there's overwhelming evidence that they're wrong, that it's impossible. I'll just read you a, um, a, a section from a statement 
uh, or an article written by James M. Tour, who's one of the world's leading synthetic chemists. And what he is talking about is, um, and this is something he wrote, by the way, on uh, the 19th of uh, uh, January back in, um, oh, sorry, wrote in May 2019, May 2019 in response to a talk that he gave earlier in the year in uh, January 2019. And in that talk, he discussed a paper that was published in Nature. Now, Nature is one of the world's top science journals. You learn earn a lot of academic credibility publishing the journal Nature. And this was an article that was published in Nature by Professor Jack Zostak, uh, spelt S-Z-O-S-T-A-K. Now, he is a Nobel Prize winner. He's a professor of genetics at Harvard uh, University, And so here, again, we have one of the top scientists in the world, and he published this article in Nature. But this is what um, Dr. Tur writes about this article. He says, regarding Jack uh, Solstak's article in Nature, I think it displays to the world a simplicity that is unfounded. Now, this article is about the origin of life on Earth and how they're doing experiments now and they're getting close to sort of understanding the mechanism whereby life, you know, first life started, uh, the origin of life. And so, as he said, it gives the reader a sense that we are much closer to finding a solution to life's origin than we really are. Indeed, I specifically said in my talk that one day we might figure out the chemistry of the origin of life, but that day is far from today. We are nowhere close. But Stozak feels that we are not far from cracking this problem. I differ strongly, and I think the synthetic chemists can be the most sceptical because we know what molecules do and do not do in an environment before life. Now, one of the reasons I'm reading this is uh, to you is that it illustrates how there is a lot of misunderstanding by highly educated people about the complexity of um, the origin of life. And he points out that in uh, uh, Sostak's article that showing that a sing- in a single step, heat and light can make a compound that resembles a dehydrated nucleotide, one of the components that would be in uh, DNA, for example, uh, although it is not a nucleotide since it was not uh, devoid of stereochemistry. And so in this uh, paper, Stosak uh, showed that from simple sugars and cyanide derivatives, this nucleotide, this important uh, compound, could be formed. And what happened was then a professor of psychiatry at a Catanian university wrote to James Tur, saying that he'd made a big uh, error in his uh, Dallas uh, lecture since another leading synthetic chemist uh, by the name of Sutherland had uh, had made some of these simple compounds that are believed to be the precursors of, of life. But as Tour pointed out, he was very familiar with Sutherland's work. James Tour then writes, the chemist writes, is that 
This professor of psychology has actually been misled by Stostak to believe that all this chemistry, the amazing, you know, the, the ability to start and build some of the components that would be uh, necessary for uh, a simple cell to form, that um, is the article led people to believe that all this chemistry is worked out and simply heat and light can work this magic. And so James Tour writes, how misled even professors can become from these writings in nature. The academy is led astray. And so what he's saying is that because uh, this professor of genetics simplified the problem so much, people think that the, uh, it's quite feasible for the chemistry required for a simple cell to form uh, can happen. Um, and uh, Tour goes on to point out the major issue is that heat and light cannot afford that conversion from the base compound ethylene glycol, glycerol or the sugar products derived after their oxidation. And he goes on to say, quote, to present that heat and light can act on these compounds, even if we are to use, and he goes on and describes some complicated uh, compounds, to afford anything like the RNA nucleotide, so that's uh, similar to the DNA um, nucleotide, is incorrect and misleading. So I'll just summarise that again. To present that heat and UV light can act on these compounds to afford anything like the listed RNA nucleotide is incorrect and misleading. And he goes on to explain why. There are so many steps involved in such a transformation. But, he says to biologists, you know, such as Dozak, um, explaining to the non-expert he feels that these details are not essential for him to point out. But these details are everything. Stereochemistry is essential. Now, stereochemistry is sort of like molecules can look the same but be mirror images of one another and have different structures. So an example would be how our right and left hands look similar but one is the mirror image of the other. So you can't put your right hand in a left-handed glove. Now, this is very important in biochemistry and living systems in that there are a lot of right-handed and left-handed molecules. And if it's not the right stereochemistry, even though it might have the same atoms and molecules in its structure, it won't work. And that's why he points out stereochemistry is essential, as are the... Um, Re reaction details. And he highlights, then Tour goes on to point out that um, Sutherland took 10 to 12 steps with multiple reagents to make the synthesis of this compound work. So, and he says, Stosek showed it in just one steps with a few simple reagents. And he points out that that is misleading of Stozak. And so what he's saying is this, that the article that appeared in Nature showed just one step involving a few simple reagents, whereas in actual fact the researcher that did the experiment involved 10 to 12 steps with multiple more reagents. 
And so in the paper in Nature, it uh, was stated that UV and UV light and heat in the presence of UV light and phosphate, nucleotides were formed. And Tour uh, points out that he finds that um, deceptive or disingenuous, he, he uses the word, and betrays the depth of the exacting chemistry involved. And he, he points out even that simple little formation of uh, cyanoethylene requires the uh, ethine, sorry, cyanoethine requires the generation of ethine by the addition of water to calcium carbide and bubbling that through hydrogen cyanide and a copper two uh, solution. And uh, um, to points out, try that in a puddle somewhere. Try to keep the cy- cyanoethane from decomposing in the presence of um, 254 nanometer UV light source, which seems to be abundant on the Earth at that time. And so um, he points out that the scientists that actually made the compound, that you know you couldn't do it in a puddle, in order to do it, they had a detailed protocol of a whole lot of um, reactions that they had to do in order. They used very advanced chemistry laboratories. They used the best equipment and tools available. They had at their disposal hundreds of years of chemical literature to aid them in understanding the possible chemistry. And so the complexity is enormous. And um, he points out that, you know, some people think that, well, it was done in the lab, so that way if it's done in the lab, it could be done in uh, on the early earth before there was any life. Somehow it could be done. And um, he points out that no way... And this is Tour speaking. Uh, He says, no way. I work with students all the time. This chemistry is exacting and painful in the lab. And even with the experimental protocols in hand, it would be hard for anyone, only a well-experienced PhD in synthetic chemistry students, to reproduce the work of Sutherland. And what if they did not have the protocols at hand? It would be much harder. And it goes on. To say, And what if they had to do it in a cave or an outdoor puddle of water? It would be harder. And so essentially what he's saying is most people that like to disagree with me or, insuffi- uh, or to insufficiently appreciate what I'm talking about are untrained. And so this highlights a very important fact that here we had a paper published in Nature that greatly oversimplified the chemistry involved in synthesising just one possible ingredient that may somehow have been involved in the origin of um, you know, the first life. And so here, however, we have the, the Academy of Sciences statement um, you know, saying that you know, this has been verified by experiment. It hasn't. Let me let me read a, a statement, uh, some statements that Tour, as I said, Tour is one of the most highly cited synthetic chemists in the world. He builds the new molecules. That's his job: is to build molecules. Let me just uh, read to you what uh, what he writes. He says, "I have written a long article on the origin of life," and he gives a reference. And again, if you want to look this up, anybody listening, just uh, Google J.M. Tour, 
jmtour.com. That's J-M-Tour, dot com, And click on the Personal Topics Evolution Creation page. And you can read what he's written. And he says, It is clear chemists and biologists are clueless. I wrote, Those who think scientists understand the issue of prebiotic chemistry, that's the origin of life, are wholly misinformed. Nobody understands them. Maybe one day we will, but that day is far from today. It would be far more helpful and hopeful to expose students to the massive gaps in our understanding. They may find a firmer and possibly a radically different scientific theory. The basis upon which we as scientists are relying is so shaky that we must openly state the situation for what it is. It is a mystery. So that is the origin of life is a mystery. Note that since the time my submission of that commentary side above, articles continue to be published on prebiotic chemistry. The origin of life, often encompassing the terms of prebiotic chemistry or biogenesis, that's how non-living molecules are supposed to have formed a, a living cell. The article that I cite above is long, and I need to repeat it, but even in that article, I never address the issue of information. The informational coding within the DNA or RNA that corresponds to the sequence of nucleic acids is primary to the entire discussion of life. Some would rightly argue that the information is even more fundamental than the matter upon which is encoded. I merely showed that the requisite molecules, lipids, proteins, nucleic acids and carbohydrates, are so unlikely to have occurred in the states and quantities needed that we could never have gotten to the point of figuring out the genesis of the requisite code or information. He's talking about the DNA code. The code is analogous to a difference between the Library of Congress and a big box of alphabetic letters. The library has a huge amount of embedded information, while the random box of letters has little. So the origin of first life is the nail in the coffin closed on the emergence of biological evolution. Without that first life or simple cell, which requires the four molecule types plus information, all proposals regarding biological evolution are without a base of life. And it is difficult to discuss biology without life. But even if one were given all the molecules needed in complete stereochemical purity and the information code, a cell could a cell be constructed using the chemical and biochemical tools we have today? I have written about such a hypothetical experiment and how it would be impossible using today's expertise to even construct the lipid bilayer, namely the exterior packaging that holds the cell's nanomachinery in place. Just the lipid bilayer, which itself surrounds thousands of nanosystems, is beyond our ability to synthesise. The conclusion of that thought experiment is that Life based upon amino acids, nucleotides, saccharides and lipids is an anomaly. Life should not exist anywhere in our universe. Life should not even exist on the surface of the earth. Yet we are led to believe that 3.8 billion years ago the requisite compounds could be found in some cave or undersea vent and somehow they assembled themselves into the first cell. If you have knowledge of chemical or biochemical synthesis or nanosystem assembly, I encourage you to read that short article and judge for yourself. If I'm wrong, then enlighten me on my error. 
if I'm correct, and ponder how far afield we have gone in projecting to the public our knowledge of life's origin. Finally, there is a severe discord between the claims of the origin of life researchers and the actual state of research. It is time to a call out on the research until we can define what would constitute an advancement rather than sophistry. So that's a very, very powerful statement that really makes us question this big statement by the International Academy of Sciences. And it points out how our education system has been hijacked and how highly learned people are making assertions on things that really they haven't researched properly and haven't fully understood. This is a very serious situation. I would um, suggest that listeners that are interested in this area have a look at uh, James M. Tour's websites and um, also some of his, his lectures that are up on YouTube. But it's interesting that the publication of uh, statements uh, by these Academy of Sciences that are essentially in many cases aimed at stopping the teaching of creation, of biblical creation. And yet we have no scientific explanation for the origin of life. According to the chemistry that we know and can study today, it's absolutely impossible for life to have formed on Earth. And here I've just uh, read uh, some statements by one of the world's top synthetic chemists, points out the chemistry that would be involved in such a synthesis, let alone the information encoded in the DNA for replication and so forth. And a similar situation um, is in the case of the the Big Bang uh, theory. We... You know, it's claimed the universe is expanding, but really when we look at it, we we can't really properly measure that to ascertain that. We have, uh, you know, no really clear-cut way of measuring that. The measurements that are reported, again, tend to be equivocal. And so, again, there's so much information that is out here that is just on the basis of assertions and unproven theories and hypotheses that is being taken as a given. And this is very misleading to the public. There are some also very good articles on these issues on the um, Creation Ministries International website, which is creation.com, if you just Google creation.com, and... um, Enter in a search question like the age of the earth or um, on evolution, creation, these sort of things. They have a lot of resources. Also, there's my book, In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. This uh, book is available also free on the creation.com website. Just enter in six days in the search engine and um, it'll come up on the index there and you'll see um, if you click on it and then a list of names will appear down the side and they will give you uh, the names of different... um, uh, of the different contributors and their chapters, uh, such as John P. Marcus has an excellent chapter on the mathematical probability of why it's impossible for new genes to form by chance in the theory of evolution. And, of course, you can re-listen to these programs by Googling uh, 3ABN Australia, all one word, .org, .au, 
and click on the listen button. I'm Dr. John Ashton. You've been listening to Faith and Science. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 